And uh, it is a joy to move slowly through the book of Ephesians, particularly this opening passage. And uh, as we continue to look at the book of Ephesians, I'll continue to remind you in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul takes a pattern uh, that God directed him and Peter and many others to take often in that Ephesians starts with indicatives. It starts with the truth of salvation. The first half of the book is just communicating to us the grace of God in salvation uh, what he has done to save us, who we were when he saved us, how that should change things because he has saved us. And then it goes into how we ought to live. It's in the center of the letter that we find uh, really the thrust if we are looking for how do we apply Ephesians. And looking how the letter is laid out in 1 through 3 that there is truth given and 4 through 6 that that truth is then exposited to compel us to live by it. The transition in that is chapter 4, verse 1, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This morning, we're going to continue to look at that calling. Uh, If you will read with me, or listen while I read, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, We thank you, Father, that even a giant run on sentence proclaiming the goodness and the glory of your grace pausing and pointing and directing and clarifying the goodness of your grace is not enough. We thank you that you have given us your word, that we have enough for us, Father. We have enough to know and enough to live by and enough to trust you in. We thank you that you will and have called us to eternity, that we will forever praise you in more than we can imagine and more than we can understand because you are the blessed God, the good God, who is gracious beyond belief. 
I pray, Father, that you would give us hearts uh, that long to praise you this morning. I pray you would remind us of all the blessings you have given us in Christ. I pray, Father, that our hope would be sure. Uh, Despite our outward circumstance, we would have hope in that our true circumstance is in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let me read for the sake of uh, reading again, verses 3 and 4. And this morning we'll spend the majority of our time in four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you remember last week as we looked at verse 3, Uh, We talked about two things, the truth of the blessed God and the true blessings of God in Christ. In first looking at the statement Paul makes, the truth of the blessed God, understanding that God is blessed, that the blessed God is the exalted God, the praised God, the God who is raised above all. And so we looked first that the truth Paul's proclaiming is not that we must praise God, though we must What he is proclaiming is that God is the one who is praised. He will be. He is the exalted God. Creation, seen and unseen, all creation, everything made will forever proclaim him as exalted. And what is amazing in following that is not only is he the exalted God who will forever be exalted, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he has chose to bless us. He has chosen to exalt us in Christ. He has chosen to give us every spiritual blessing, every spiritual exaltation, every praise that the blessed God had no requirement to give. And if you remember from last week, we looked at this two, two different elements of which we looked at blessed. In blessed, that, that shall be praised and exalted and lifted up and blessed as in the Sermon on the Mount, the blessed, those who are joyful, those who are happy, those who are satisfied in life. In English, we use the word both ways. In Greek, they're two different words, but the idea of both uh, are that this God who has blessed us, proclaimed to us, we have every spiritual exaltation from God, Well, then in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is expressing is, if that's true, if we are kingdom citizens, if we are the saints of his, then we are those who are always satisfied, always joyful, always thankful in life. And I don't know about you, but I know that I do not always function as a citizen of the kingdom of God. I am not always satisfied, not always joyful in the moment, not always looking as though everything is great. But, because of the truth of what God has done, we are those who can live with joy. We are not trapped to live as those who are dissatisfied, those who are discontent, those who are grumbling. But we are those who can be poor in spirit, can be meek, can be mourning on earth, and always have joy. Because of what Christ has done. And too often, we look to the blessings of this earth to give us satisfaction and joy. And we find when we look to perishing blessings, we find perishing joy. We would be better served to look to eternal blessings or those blessings that are in the heavenly places, 
or those blessings that Paul proclaims. And that's where we're going to spend the next few weeks. We talked about if you want to be those who are joyful in the sense of blessed, we need to recognize that you are those, if you are in Christ, those who are eternally blessed. And therefore, even in a perishing life, can rest your joy in an eternal hope. So this week we are going to look at the first of many blessings Paul proclaims. He says at the end of verse 3 that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ. And then he states in verse 4, even as or just as. So he's, now he's stating this is, a, this is a furthering of that blessing. Right? He says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now he's saying even as or just as or let me give you an example. Let me express to you how you are blessed. And he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we're going to look at it in two sections. Not very clever, but hopefully very clear. Blessed to be chosen in him and holy and blameless before him. Blessed to be chosen in him and holy and blameless before him. So first, blessed to be holy in him. As it says, blessed to be chosen, that word is a word that has caused much contention in the history of the church. Chosen is elected. Or as Paul will go on to say, he will clarify and say, predestined. Uh, these words, elected, predestined, chosen, have caught, it's caused a lot of debate. When we talk about election, I do want to be clear of what we're talking about. And I think a good definition is given by Wayne Grudem. Uh, and he says, in an act, it, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because his sovereign good pleasure. And so that is technically the doctrine of election. Okay, If you're trying to think, what are we talking about? That's a good technical definition of the doctrine of election. My plan this morning is not to go over a really technical, theological explanation of election. Because I think often the reason we find so much debate over things like election is because we spend time technicalizing it, I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up. It's not technical. But we spend too much time debating and philosophizing and making up arguments and trying to convince one another rather than going to the Word of God and saying, why is this true? Or is this true? Should we hold to a doctrinal statement that says God before creation show some people to be saved, not based on any merit of themselves, but for his own sovereign pleasure. Should we adopt such a statement? Should such a statement define what we believe? How do you want to answer that question? By going to the Word of God. You want to answer it by going to the Word of God. The language is very clear here, right? But look, look at it again with me. I know we've looked at it so many times this morning, but I want you to see it's very clear. 
He says we have been blessed with everything. He says we are first blessed as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. It is clear he chose us and the clarity continues in how he chose us. He chose us in Christ. When did he chose us? He chose us before the foundation of the world. And what will his choice do? His choice will cause us to be holy and blameless before him. There's, there's not confusion in what Ephesians says, right? He chose us. He chose us in Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. The words are clear. Their purpose is very clear. If you'll look, I know it's cheating to go ahead, but it's okay. Look at verse 6. Look at the context. He tells us why he did this. The purpose is clear. In verse 6 he says, All of this was done to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. It says, we are blessed in the heavenly places. How are we blessed? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. It goes on to say, he predestined us in love for adoption for himself as sons through Jesus Christ for the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you remember, verse 3 through 14 is one giant run on sentence. But you can see in the sentence, Paul is returning back to these things. He's saying, you have blessing in Christ. What is the blessing? You are chosen in him before the world was created to be holy. You're adopted in him. He is yours. Why? For the praise of his grace. For every praise that he might be glorified. Why? Because he has blessed us. It's a long run on sentence, but it's not changing topics. In my opinion, it's a really good run-on sentence. I was a history teacher, not an English teacher, so I don't mind run-on sentences. They're historically accurate. But Paul's purpose, his words, are not unclear. His intention is clear. And so, Christian, I want you to stop and ask yourself, if you wrestle with this idea and you find conflict within you, let's go to the Word of God together and see what it says. And if you have embraced this idea, if you hold fast to that definition, do you apply it in the context of Ephesians 1? That God would be proclaimed. That you would be overwhelmed. That you would walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Or do you grab it as something to fight with people over? Do you find it as a comfort and a joy? Or do you find it as a conflict or ammunition? At others. Both are a failure. To not embrace this, we believe, would be to, to not embrace the, the true teaching of Scripture. But to embrace this to beat others with is not trusting in a sovereign God who has accomplished all of this without you. And so my hope for this morning is that we would rest in these words and we would find great hope in them. So let's get to the words. Even as he chose us in him for every, uh, before the foundation of the world. And so there is no question, as Paul states here, even as he chose us in him, that it is God who has done the choosing. 
You look with me at John fifteen sixteen. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the name of the Father, he may give to you. Notice John gives the same things. You did not choose me. I chose you. Why did I choose you? That you would be holy and blameless in the world, that you would go to do the will of the Father. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, as Paul writes to them, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He says, We know, brothers, not that you were saved, not that you were zealous, not that you really did this, but we know you are loved by God, that he chose you, because when the gospel came to you, it came to you not only in words and ideas, But you were made holy and blameless. That you were given full conviction in the Spirit. Romans 9. As Paul gives an argument for this, that God is the God over all and that He saves. And this is the passage where he says, even before they were born, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And he doesn't just say before they were born. He says before they could do anything, good or bad. He doesn't say I chose Jacob because he was good and I chose Esau because he was bad. No, it says before they could do anything, God had already made his choice. And as you read, Jacob is not that much of a better man than Esau. Jacob actually means the unsavory quality of deception. The only reason I know that is because my mother chose to name me the unsavory quality of deception. As did a large portion of the American population. Might have been a mistake. Maybe you should have named your kids Esau. Who knows? Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Why? Because God has chosen. God has called him. God is doing this according to his purpose and his will. And as that might be, your, your mind is going... Wait a second. How does that work? Doesn't that make God evil? Doesn't that make God unjust? How does all of this work? Paul recognizes that. Led by the Holy Spirit, God knows that. And this is what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, on God who shows grace. John six forty four makes it very clear. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Does this mean people hear the gospel and then they're just dramatically changed and nothing? They don't respond, they don't do anything, it's all God. Yes, it is all God. That does not mean there is no response. Remember Thessalonians, it says, how do we know that God did this? Because you responded. Because you were zealous. Because you were pursuing to be changed by the God of all grace who has blessed you in every spiritual blessing. It is hidden to us in one sense. But His work is never hidden. It functions. And he chose us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He chose us in Christ. That means something. He didn't choose you in you. He didn't look down at you and go, you know what? Isaiah's getting it together. You know, before, 
I don't know if I could have used him. He's a little bit. But now he's really changed his life, right? We often talk this way. Hey, you know, I need to get back to church. I need to start being faithful. I need to start doing these things. And why do we feel that way? We feel the burden of guilt, as we talked about in Romans 1, that the wrath of God rests against all unrighteousness. We feel there's something unrighteous in me. I need to do something. But God doesn't look down and go, Whew, finally they're responding. Finally they're getting it. No. He says he chose us. In him, in his perfect righteousness. He didn't look down and see if he could find any righteousness in you. It says in Christ. Why did he chose you? He chose you because Christ is perfect. And in Christ, he determined and chose to choose you. He said, this child shall be mine. They shall be mine. And there is nothing inside of you that compelled him. It is Christ. And Ephesians makes clear it is his plan and his purpose and his pleasure that he chose you in Christ. That's a huge blessing. If you are honest with yourself, if you are those who are blessed, you you believe the word of God and you say we are blessed because we are poor in spirit or even rather as the poor in spirit. That's what that's proclaiming in Matthew. It says blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come and say, I know I have nothing to offer but sin. They're blessed. Why? Because now they are living for the plan and the purpose of God, for his exaltation, for him to be exalted above all, because they have been chosen in him. James Montgomery Boyce, who I, I would recommend highly if you're looking for something to read, his great commentary series, it's really not a commentary, it's just his sermons, and they are very beneficial to me in pastoring and caring for others. James Montgomery Boyce writes this in regards to our struggle with election. He says, when people have trouble with election, and many do, their real problem is not with the doctrine of election, although they think it is, but it is with the doctrine of depravity that makes election necessary. The question to settle is, how far did the human race fall when it fell? Did man fall upward? That this is the view of secular evolutionists that we're all getting better and better. Did man fall partway, but not the whole way? So that he's damaged by sin, but he's not fully ruined by sin. That's the view of Pelagians or Arminians. It affirms that we are affected by sin, but it insists that nevertheless we possess the ability to turn from it and believe in Christ when the gospel is offered by our own power. Or did man fall the whole way so that he is no longer capable of making even the smallest movement back toward God unless God first reaches down and performs the miracle of new birth? That is the view of Scripture. The Bible says that we are dead in transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1. It says there is no one, not one, who seeks after God, Romans 3.11. Jesus declared that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, John 6.44. It's written in Genesis that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and had become, and that every inclination of the heart was evil. He could have included Jeremiah 17.9, that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. 
You can look at the end of Joshua when the people say, we choose that we will follow him. As for me and my house, we'll follow the Lord. We're going to do it, Joshua. And Joshua responds and says, you are not able. Depend on him. The scripture is clear. You are not able. And the language of Ephesians is clear. You did not choose him. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Look at that. Before the foundation of the world. God chose you, not dependent upon you. It was before you were ever made. Before the foundation of the world. Right? So Abel could have been like, that wasn't that long ago. He probably knew what was going on. Like, my mom and dad were Adam and Eve. The foundation of the world was like, I could still see the foundation marks. Not so for you, right? You, You don't see the foundation marks. You don't understand it. We've covered them in concrete and asphalt. You, you weren't there. This is not you. It is a statement of timing. And it's saying the timing in which he chose you was far before you were ever made. Why is this said? To comfort you. This isn't something you've done or you do. This is in Christ, and this was before you ever existed. This is before your great, 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 and you could just keep saying great. All those people who you don't know, who came before you, who are in your line, God knew and God knows and God has chosen who will come to him. Before the foundation of the earth. And a lot of people want to treat this like the impossible question, right? We treat it like the, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Do you know how you know the answer to that question? Genesis 1, 6. The fifth and sixth day, what did God do? It doesn't say he created eggs. It says he created birds that could fly. And he created the beasts of the field. Do you know what the real question is? What day was the chicken created? Because it can't fly, but it's a bird. I thought, I'm just going to turn, and real quick, which day did he make the chickens? And I'm like, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. I know the chicken was first, but it could have been on day five. It could have been on day six. It's an animal that creeps on the ground, but it also has wings. It's a bird. It's, I'm going to ask him when I get there, what day was the chicken made? But the point is, we don't have to wrestle. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life going, now I have an impossible biblical question. Were my chickens made on the fifth day or the sixth day? I don't know. What am I supposed to tell my chickens? I don't talk to my chickens. I talk to my pigs, not my chickens. I'm not going to wrestle through that question. Why? Because God has made it clear that I know all I need to know. And when it comes to what seems to us the impossible question, what came first, our choice or his choice? The Bible is clear. He chose us in him. He chose us before the creation of the world. If you want to make the twisted arguments to say that he chose you because you chose him, you are manipulating scripture to fit a philosophical idea. The Bible is very clear. He chose us in him. Why did he choose us? Well, in verse 5, it says he chose us according to the purpose of his will. 
In verse 9, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He finishes what he started and he started this plan before the creation of the world. So when you are living the Matthew 5 life, mourning, of a poor spirit, when you were broken, when you were persecuted, falsely, for righteousness sake, when you are called to live as the meek, when you feel those burdens, you can trust that what is happening now is for the plans and the purpose of His glory, which He set forth in Christ before the foundation of the world. When you wake up and it seems that everything is going wrong, you can remind yourself, this is the God who, when all seemed lost, rose Christ from the dead. This is not a God who is confused how to bring life out of death. And his plan is not like our plans, right? You probably don't make plans like this. This is how I make plans. I walk around our house or our property and I tell Lauren, We should do this. We should do that. We should do this. And occasionally I start one of those we should do. And I generally stop at about 90%. I feel like it's fair. If I do 90, someone else only has to do 10. That seems fair, right? I try to justify why I don't finish projects. I make jokes about it because I'm insecure and trying to hide what I'm doing. That's not the God who called you. He wasn't walking around creation going, Adam and Eve are eating the fruit. Uh-oh, what's plan B? Israel doesn't listen to a thing I say. How am I going to fix that? Oh, no. Israel's going to kill the Messiah. Now what? None of that is going on in God. From the foundation of the earth, he has set a plan. And he has revealed the mystery of his will that he would call even Gentiles to salvation. There is no need for us to fret over who chooses who. There is no need for us to fret over how things are playing out. Because he is working all things according to to the purpose of his will. And so what do we do in that? What do we do in all things working according to the purpose of his will? Well, it states for us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. Why did he choose us in Christ? When did he choose us in Christ? And what happens because we were chosen in Christ? He chose us He did it long ago. It is done before he started. He knew how he was ending. And now you know the purpose of it. It's a little confusing because in our English translation, it would not fit if we read this just in Greek. If we just said, we be holy and blameless before him. You'd say, you know, mockers would say the Bible is not written and it's not even eligible, like tangible. I don't know what word I'm looking for. You can't even read it. They'd accuse, they'd go, look at that guy, can't even explain why you can't read it. So we add English words to make clear the text, right? 
We're translating. Many of you speak two languages. You understand that things don't always directly translate. And so in Greek, this is not a statement of probability. This is a statement of fact. This is a statement of ongoing fact. This is a statement of what he is doing. We are being holy and blameless. That Christ has accomplished our holiness and our blamelessness before him. The ESV says should, that we should be holy and blameless. And, and the struggle there, though it helps us to understand, the struggle there is it makes it sound probable. The NASB chooses to say that we would be holy and blameless, which is, I think, a better choice in translation, but it still doesn't fully extend to what could be there that would make this a much longer run-on sentence if it says that as a result of his plan and his purpose, we will be holy and blameless before him, continually being made holy and blameless. We will forever be and always become holy and blameless. Paul expresses it in a letter he wrote at the same time, Colossians 1, 21 through 22, after he proclaims that Christ is preeminent over all, that his plan is over all, and that what proclaims him as preeminent over all is that he is the head of his church, the people who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. This is the difference of what you were and what you are. The blessing that you were chosen in Christ is that you, though you were once alienated, you were once separated from God, you were once a foreigner to the reality of God's people. More than that, Paul would say you were an enemy of him. You are now what? You are not set apart from God. You are set apart for God. You are holy. You are his. You are set apart as his. That you were once hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You were guilty by intention and action. Right? You were guilty by your intentions and guilty by your actions. Guilty in the things you thought and guilty that you carry them out. Not every deed you think you carry out, but you carry out enough to make it clear that you are guilty. Hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But because of his reconciliation, you are now holy and blameless. So what do we do then? If, if you know this truth, you know, or maybe this morning for the first time, you realize the fact of what Christ has accomplished. If you realize for the first time the blessing of being called in the gospel, your heart is compelled that you know you are hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And you are overwhelmed that despite that, the good and blessed God would save you and call you and bring you in Christ that you might be holy and blameless, you ought to respond. You ought to make clear that he has done that work. But Ephesians makes a point for us. It says in verse 4, again, if you remember, rather, chapter 4, verse 1. In verse 4 is where we're at. And the reverse of that, how helpful. 1-4, how do you respond to 1-4? You go to 4-1. There you go. Therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Christian, I want to ask you, as you are reminded of the truth of the Word of God this morning, as you are, I hope, comforted by the fact that it is not based on you, but Him He has chosen you. It's not your righteousness, but it's His. You are comforted in the grace that this is according to His plan. He's not looking down to figure out what you're going to do. He has decided what He's doing, and He has called you to be freed from the bondage and the destruction of sin, that you are no longer His enemy, but as we'll look at next week, you are His Son, adopted into His family. As you hold fast to those truths, do you hold those truths with humility, with gentleness, with patience? Do you hold those truths to bear with one another in love? Do you hold those truths eager to maintain the unity of God's Spirit? Do you hold those truths not in the bond of holding those truths alone, but in the bond that those truths are what have brought us peace? We are no longer at war with God. We are no longer enemies. We are friends and sons. Does election compel you to live by faith? To live in a manner worthy to the calling to which you have been called? Or... Do you continue in ways you were or are? Rather than humble, you are arrogant. Rather than gentle, you are harsh. Rather than patient, you are short-tempered. Rather than bearing with one another, you isolate yourselves, hating others. Rather than in love, you are unaffectionate and uncaring. You You seek stoicism rather than biblical affection for others. You're callous and disengaged rather than eager to be with others and to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You stir conflict rather than proclaiming the message of peace. Christian, I highlight, as I often do, those things in red that we must repent of. If we are going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling... This morning we have heard our calling is far greater than you choosing to live a different way. Your calling is that He has called and chosen you to be His and you will be holy and blameless. Based on His righteousness, He does not look at you as guilty and shameful, but holy and blameless. And as a result, you can live holy and blameless. And He does not leave you to guess what that means. He says that means to be humble and gentle and patient, to bear with one another in love, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if you look at that left column and you think, some of those things are true in my life, walk worthy to the calling. And the calling is this, those things no longer have to be true in your life. You no longer have to walk in arrogance. You can walk humbly. You no longer have to walk in harshness. You can be gentle. You no longer have to be short-tempered. You can be patient. You no longer have to isolate yourself in cynicism and sarcasm and hatred. You can bear with one another in love and affection. 
You no longer have to be callous and disengaged, keeping yourself at a distance so that you might maintain your integrity or your hidden sins, but you can be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You no longer have to live your life as one who stirs conflict, one who looks to those around you as enemies, one who is alienated and hostile in mind, one that sees everyone else as an obstacle rather than the grace of God in your life. You can be those who live in the bond of peace. Peace made not by your blood, not by your action, not by your understanding, but by His blood. It is important to understand the depth of our calling because it is difficult to walk that way. And if you seek to do it in your own strength, you you seek to look at this list and go, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get up. I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to do all these things. And you don't rest in the calling that you can get up and you can make a plan and you can do these things because you were chosen in Him to be blameless and holy. You might give up some, but you won't give up all. You might stop being as arrogant and harsh with people, but you will find yourself isolated and callous. You might find yourself more loving and affectionate, but you will find yourself not humble or gentle to the outside. You will replace some virtue for your vice, but you will embrace greater vices in the name of virtue. Christian, you don't rest in that you can change in these things because he chose you and your willpower. He chose you in him that you would be holy and blameless before him. So by faith, you trust him. What does that mean? Well, that means you confess the truth. You confess that only he can do this. You can't. One great way to recognize that that is biblically prescribed is confess your sins to one another. Don't leave here today and think, I can do this in my own power. I can make this happen. Be humble in maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and go to one another and confess. Repent. Don't try to hide it. Don't think, okay, I'm just not going to live like this so no one else finds out. Determine, I'm going to turn away from this. Find those who are closest to you who know and say, I'm battling with this. And you know I've battled with this for years. But I don't want to be proud and arrogant anymore. I need your help to do this. And when I am proud or arrogant, can you lovingly remind me that Christ has called me that I don't have to live like this? What grace in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that someone can come to us and say, I'm living in the sin and we don't have to say, we know you always have. That's who you are. But we can say, we know. And you don't have to because you have been called. And in Christ you are holy and blameless. And that is how we will view you as you seek repentance, helping you to be progressively more holy and blameless. It's not just in the repentance, but the response that we show we have faith in Christ. That in Him we have been called. That we trust His plan set from the foundation of the earth. And that he is working to make his people what he has already proclaimed them to be, holy and blameless before him. My prayer is that we will continue to rest in our calling, that we might more progressively walk as those worthy of the calling. Not because we are worthy, 
but because he has made us worthy. And his purpose is that we would be blameless before him. Holy, set apart, proclaimed and exalted as his. Not for the possessions of this earth, not to have everything we want on this earth, but to have joy despite the perishing losses of this earth. Because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And there is far more. And if it was 1618, we would continue, but it's not. It's 2019. I'm fairly confident it is, yes? Yes. So let's pray that God would be so faithful to show his predetermined plan for all time through the rest of 2019 into 2020. And if he should tarry in 3,000 to our children's children, that he would still be proclaimed the blessed God who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing. Father, we thank you for your grace and faithfulness. Um, Father, I thank you that you are the God who has called us. We thank you, Lord, that our hope is in you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to live with our hope where our hope truly is. I pray you would help us, Lord, to not be overwhelmed by your calling in such a way that we retreat from it, but that we would be overwhelmed like a child overwhelmed that runs to the arms of their father. When they don't know how to communicate, they don't know how to cry out, they don't know how to solve the problem, when they are zealous and rebellious and their heart turns to say, I will rest in someone greater's arms. And fathers, we fail to fulfill that for even our children. We're thankful that you have fulfilled that, that you are not like us. You are the blessed, the exalted God. That you are holy and blameless. And we're overwhelmed that you would choose to call and to make us holy and blameless before you. Let us live so in humility and grace, compassion, compelling others to call on you as you are good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.